You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Nails. Hello my radio friends, welcome to the program and thanks for joining me today. From time to time I draw on my personal experiences to illustrate some point of special interest and today I wish to begin by sharing something from my childhood. You see, on the property where we lived near the River Murray in South Australia, we had a variety of sources of income including fruit growing. My parents were hard-working, industrious people, and my father had planted two orchards, one with summer-ripening stone fruits and the other with winter-ripening citrus fruit. In the summer, when the apricots were ripe, instead of selling them fresh, we dried them. Dad built a sealed room where the apricots, when halved and laid on wooden trays, were placed in that room and were sulphured. Sulphuring consisted of using a metal container filled with a wick and sulphur. The wick, made of part of an old jute bag, was set alight and it in turn caused the sulphur to slowly burn. The sulphur dioxide smoke produced caused the apricot halves to weep. After 12 hours, the then juice-filled halves were placed in the sun to dry. We have two apricot trees at our home at present, and my wife and I dry our fruit each summer. My dad made his own wooden trays, almost a metre long and about 600 millimetres wide. They had cleats nailed to each end of them. And I too built many of those trays even though I was just a boy. I became an expert at straightening out bent nails. And instead of discarding bent nails, I would straighten and reuse them. Thinking about those nails has led my thoughts to the Bible. Toward the end of each of the Gospel books of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you can read about the crucifixion of Jesus. In each case, the crucifixion is stated quite simply. But how was it done? Well, any victim of crucifixion was led and sometimes dragged to the place of crucifixion, forced to lay on top of the cross that was lying flat on the ground, then with several burly soldiers holding the victim down, Metal spikes were driven through his hands, or sometimes wrists, and the feet. The cross was then lifted into a vertical position and dropped into the hole prepared for it. Then rocks and rubble were filled in around the base of the cross to keep it upright. The cross was a means of excruciating torture until death. No one could expect to escape alive. Victims of crucifixion did not last many hours hanging from the cross. 
nails are not actually mentioned in the biblical account of the crucifixion, but were later after the, the resurrection. You see, Jesus, after resurrecting, appeared to the disciples, although on that first occasion Thomas was not there with them. In John chapter 20 and verse 25 is the record of what happened on that particular occasion. The other disciples therefore said unto Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Ah, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. In our modern language, we have the expression doubting Thomas. That saying originates from what I've just shared with you. It's from the Bible. Jesus was nailed to the cross through no fault of his own. He gave up his sinless life and took all that horrible treatment for you and for me. He is the means the channel to life eternal. But I want to share with you something else you may not have ever considered before. The name God wanted Moses and humanity to recognize him by was I am. Jesus, who was God, also used that name, but included a descriptor with it. For example, he said about himself, I am the Good Shepherd. I am the Light of the World. Amongst other claims, Jesus also announced, I am the Way, the Truth, and the Life. So that means that when Jesus was killed on the cross, the Light of the World, the Way, the truth and the life was killed, right? Now, I'm not sure exactly how many nails were used in the crucifixion. There were probably three, but possibly four. In today's presentation, I want to use each of three nails to, to represent the killing of one aspect of Christ. So let's start with nail number one, nailing truth to the cross and murdering it. Jesus was truth. He spoke the truth. He lived the truth. In him was truth. Jesus spoke about and lived the truth about the love of God for sinful mankind. He spoke the truth about the Holy Scriptures and about the creation of the world. He spoke the truth about the great worldwide flood. He spoke about his own mission to this earth, about his death and resurrection. He spoke about future events and the destruction of the world and about his second coming to collect in person those who were faithful to him and take them home to heaven to the place he prepared for them. So 
what is the situation existing in the world today about truth? Sadly, there are some widely accepted lies that are completely contradictory to what the Bible teaches and are contradictory to what Jesus taught. Jesus spoke about God and God's love for sinful mankind. Yet there is a widespread belief that God does not exist. Communism has eliminated God. Evolution has eliminated God. Materialism eliminates God. Eastern religions eliminate God as the creator and put in his place gods, lots of them. And then philosophy all but eliminates God. So in Western society, God is almost non-existence. Truth about God has been nailed to the cross. And then, of course, there's the evolution issue. Evolution teaches that our planet, the universe and everything therein, including all life, made itself from nothing. There were no plans, no guiding intelligence, no modus operandi. Even so, some naive evolutionists define evolution as, now you listen to this, as some unknown, unidentifiable force. How can people of intelligence come up with such a ridiculous, childish idea as that? If it is unknown and unidentifiable, how do they know it's there? That kind of thinking leaves me dumbfounded. But of course evolution has nailed truth to the cross. Instead of truth, mankind is basically forced to believe in a cleverly designed, thinly coated with poison, evolution lie that pretends to be science. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24, Jesus warned about the future, stating, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets. False prophets deliver false messages, messages that deceive and delude the people. I believe it is also a false message that there was no worldwide flood. An ever-increasing number of scientists have been finding more and more evidence for a huge mass of water flowing fast that has shaped the surface of our planet. Most of the rocks and land features of Earth are of a sedimentary nature. To me, that supports the understanding of a worldwide flood as recorded in Genesis chapters 6 to 8. Yet, in ignoring what the Bible says, man has spent a lot of time and energy trying to disprove the flood by piling up theories about inland seas and local floods. In the secular world, and for many in the religious world, truth about the flood has been killed 
nailed to the cross, as it were. Even in churches that claim to be Christian, truth has been sacrificed for error, such as with the doctrine of an ever-burning hell, the doctrine of the secret rapture, the doctrine of the necessity of speaking in tongues to be saved, the doctrine of doing away with God's immutable law, the doctrine of substitution of Sunday worship replacing God's seventh-day Sabbath, the doctrine of once saved, always saved, and there are others too. Overall, truth is being nailed to the cross, killed through the efforts of man. Well, that's nail number one. Now let's go to nail number two, the way. One of the quests of pretty much every individual who's ever lived and is living on this planet is the search for everlasting happiness. The way to everlasting happiness is to believe, to accept, to obey and to follow Jesus Christ. He has promised forgiveness of sins and as a result to be given eternal life. Life without the kinds of sadness, inequalities and trouble humanity is forced to bear right now. But there are other messages out there advertising happiness. Materialism shouts loudly that possessions and money give instantaneous happiness. And if you don't believe me, why don't you carefully analyse the ads that come onto your TV screens? Usually the advertising messages show that you will become instantly well and pain-free if you only take this or that tablet. Alternatively, if you buy this or that model car, you will experience instant happiness and pleasure as you drive away from the showroom. Others teach that lasting happiness comes from pleasure, having a good time at this or that function. Others promote happiness in eating this or that pasta, meat, frozen dessert or hamburger. You see the smiles on the faces of those on the ads, and sometimes the smiles include dancing for joy at the same time. Instant happiness ads include drinking and sport. People are conditioned to expect mind-altering drugs, power and other such things to be the way to happiness. But all involve selfishness and self-indulgence. Yet the Bible teaches that we are saved and will have eternal happiness by committing ourselves to the Lord. He is the one who gives eternal happiness. And we're going to have a break here and go on straight afterwards. Our sins and griefs to bear 
God in prayer Oh, what peace we often forfeit Oh, what needless pain we bear God in to eternal happiness and the way to live according to the secular view is nailed to the cross who needs to believe in a personal saviour when you can get happiness through other means is the message the world delivers the way to live the way to eternal life according to them has been nailed to the cross now we come to nail number three Life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Primarily, the life Jesus was referring to is eternal life. But I believe that in a secondary sense, he meant life in the everyday, our mortal lives. I once heard a statement that over 70% of patients in psychiatric institutions were there because of guilt they were unable to control. Now, whether the statement's true or not, I don't know, but the statement highlights an important issue. Sin brings conflict, conflict with others, but also conflict within one's own self. Injustice, broken marriages, disregard of the rights of others, lying, stealing and other such actions do not favour having a good night's sleep. The life that comes with being a follower of Christ may still have some troubles, but handling those troubles is a different scenario. 
In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus announced, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The life wherein one experiences that peace is a life connected with Jesus. The Old Testament book of Isaiah is about life, both good and bad. Chapter 57, verse 3, speaks about those who live righteous lives. It says, Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest. And then chapter 58 is about how people who are truly committed to the Lord and how they live according to his will. will. And then chapter 59 describes those who live lives of selfish, iniquity and greed. And I'd like to read to you verses 2, 6, 7 and 8. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. You see, the good life, the life that is filled with joy and peace, is a life where one has a personal relationship with the Lord and where we do his will by obeying his commandments. 1 Corinthians 10.31 emphasizes that point. It says, Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. From personal experience, I can tell you that it is much more satisfying to be able to look others in the eye knowing that your actions are right and that your conscience is clear. And I'd like you to know that it is a wonderful thing to be able to confide in the Lord in prayer. And if you've done something wrong, to ask for and receive forgiveness. Those who criticise Christ's followers think that by being a believer and a follower of Christ is boring, that there's no excitement. But don't believe that for a moment. Following Christ and doing his will is not only satisfying, it's exciting and very often a challenge. For example, let's say some of your friends want you to go to a party and indulge in binge drinking, using drugs and possibly illicit sexual activity. To be able to say no against peer pressure takes guts. To stand up for right amongst those who want to do wrong requires strength of character and purpose. And I can tell you from experience it's quite exciting to do that. Another example. You might be in dire need of, say, a job or money to pay a bill, a situation to be resolved or something like that. 
When you've committed your life to the Lord, he invites you to approach him for help. And again, I want to share with you the words of Jesus who said, and it's recorded in Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Of course, what we ask for must be in accordance with God's will. It's no good asking for things that, not, that won't do you any good or things which will lead you away from the Lord. God is generous and reasonable, but not stupid. He will often surprise us how he answers our prayer requests. And here's an example of the exciting life of a committed Christian, George Mueller. George Mueller was a Christian missionary evangelist and a coordinator of orphanages in Bristol, England. Through his faith and prayers and without asking for money, he had the privilege of caring for over 120,000 orphan children. He also travelled over 200,000 miles by ship to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in 42 countries and to challenge believers about world missions and trusting God. In his journals, Mueller recorded miracle after miracle of God's provision and answered prayer. And here's one. He says, One morning, all the plates and cups and bowls on the table were empty. There was no food in the larder and no money to buy food. The children were standing waiting for their morning meal when Mueller said, Children, you know we must be in time for school. Then, lifting up his hands, he prayed, Dear Father, we thank you for what you are going to give us to eat. Just then there was a knock at the door. The baker stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread and have brought it for you. No sooner had the baker left when there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman. He announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so he could empty his wagon and repair it. Life as a Christian is not boring. It's exciting. The nails that nailed Jesus to the cross nailed God's truth, God's way, and the satisfying life that God can give. And I want you to know that the greatest satisfaction that you can ever have is to be found in God's truth, God's way, and God's life. Try it. You have my personal recommendation. <laughs> 